You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. Welcome to the New Models Podcast. AI, artificial intelligence. Everyone's talking about it, but what is it? Behind AI is a great mystery. A mystery that could end in the murder of humanity itself. Semantically, AI is the hoverboard to machine learning self-balancing e-scooter. An inaccurate sci-fi marketing term used as a catch-all for the large language and image-generating models that have rattled the entire punditocracy of tech, art, politics, and society. There's literal fedora guys doing the Twitter equivalent of yelling on the street with a sandwich board that reads the end is near, and cocksure, speed-horny transhumanists spray and praying a glossolalia of accelerationist alignment affirmations. And while I've generated gigs of screenshots from 80s exploitation films that don't exist and resurrected the voices of the dead to narrate commercial sizzle reels, New Models has not yet entered the fray of so-called AI discourse. Where, to be honest, would we even start? Of course, one day it struck us that the answer was about three kilometers away at the house of Herndon Dryhurst, the royal family of the intersection of art and AI. This is a colorful description, but not a sarcastic one. Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon are the real deal in this space, being early movers, deep thinkers, and accomplished artists, as well as fellow podcasters on Interdependence, which our channel feed listeners know well. Also, they avoid hyperbole and don't post bait, and there is a lot of both in online AI discussion. With this episode, we explore what a machine learning-enabled landscape of infinite media and cloned celebrities will mean for artists and copyright, and how the photos and posts of our online past ended up as training data for the new machine learning models of our AI future. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guests are Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon. Let's get into it. This year, we've been giving iterations of a talk that considers the dramatic changes in media over the past two decades, and how, in turn, these changes in information flows are changing all of us as thinkers, as users, as a public sphere. One of the key revelations is that, as traditional media gives way to nonlinear media, it's not enough to just make content. Content is cheap. One needs to also creatively shape, or at least have an awareness of how media circulates, how it is valued and stored. One of the most critical creative acts one can do today is to act at the level of protocol, the rule sets that govern how things interact. Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon are exceptional models of this shift. Having worked together for nearly two decades, creating, releasing, and performing music, they have in the past few years been turning more attention to shaping the systems through which their music is distributed, valued, and archived. Central to this pursuit has been their work in machine learning, anticipating the rapid advancement of AI technology and the impact it would no doubt have on the creative sector. They started directing more of their energy towards the capacities of creative production via AI. So we're very lucky to be joining Matt and Holly in their studio today, actually, the interdependent studio, to talk through AI, which of course has been very much in the news the past few months and particularly in the past few days. So much so so that we were like, we can't do an AI episode. When, how could we even do an AI episode? The discourse changes so fast. And then we're just like, wait, we know Matt and Holly. <laughs> and there'll be some of you who are super familiar with their podcast, Interdependence, which if you're interested in the following episode, you should absolutely subscribe to. But maybe there's some people who aren't totally aware. So we're really lucky that Matt and Holly are giving us their time this afternoon to talk to us and talk us through some of the big changes that have happened in AI, particularly as it regards creative production. So Matt and Holly, welcome to New Models in your studio. <laughs> 
<laughs> Great to be home. <laughs> yeah, yeah thank, thanks for having us. And that was a very, a very flattering introduction. So m- much appreciated. Yeah, super value your insight. I mean, both as technologists, but of course also as artists. And I thought maybe just as a way of starting, could you orient us to when you started making this transition to, I mean, I think you've always been interested in technology and how it affects cultural production, but could you talk us through the moment when you started focusing a larger part of your energy on the systems that circulate, archive, produce the content that you make? I would say it probably goes back to 2008 when we moved to California from Berlin. So, you know, a lot of people think about Silicon Valley as this kind of monolith, but there's many different kind of technology crews there. And we were part of a very kind of DIY, I guess, scene. And that was really empowering to me as I didn't grow up like that. So I was a little bit intimidated to approach technology in general. And so being in that kind of DIY nurturing environment was when I started to feel really comfortable, just kind of like creating my own Max patches and hacking around on things. So I would say that was probably the the biggest shift. That's true. And it's also going to change that we met each other through noise music. So like strange <laughs> music. And it's funny because there's actually a, the noise tradition was how much distinction can you create with what you're doing based on oftentimes kind of hacking the tools, right? So you're like, I have this no input mixer. I'm going to introduce a spoon into this (laughs) signal chain. Oh my gosh. And so like, I think... (laughs) This is triggering. (laughs) But I think think noise music is kind of underrated in in that sense because it is very material in that sense, right? It's like treating sound as material, but it's also like you roll up and then there's like 20 people and they're all kind of making noise. But Well, everyone in the audience is performing. So that's... Exactly. So it's very DIY. It's very kind of communal in the sense. And like the big breakthrough for me was the early 2010s. It became quite clear that there's this kind of gray area between the platforms that are facilitating work and the work itself. And that a lot of it was kind of process hacking, right? Of uh-huh. like making sure the photograph of your exhibition looks really good on Contemporary Art Daily was this way of like hacking the feed. And so the big observation was that, okay, if the platforms that we're using have such a clear aesthetic outcome in terms of the work that's being made, right? Like Spotify wants you to make a certain kind of music. YouTube wants you to make a certain kind of video and make a certain kind of facial expression then it only follows that you would start looking at the protocol or platform level in terms of making artistic gestures, right? Like what if you then created a different protocol through which to distribute work that would naturally have its own aesthetic outcomes and could even be considered an aesthetic gesture unto itself. Definitely. Right? And so I don't see such a clear distinction between people who go to art school and like produce a painting or something. And let's say a person like Rivers Have Wings, who most people don't know, whose aesthetic choices led to most AI image aesthetics that people see today, right? She's someone who produced a model with very biased, opinionated perspectives on what the outputs would look like. And perhaps my interpretation of that as art is atypical, but I would stand by it. One area where this became clear first was at the platform level. And that's where Matt and I were working on this album that we ended up calling Platform because we were thinking about how much platforms shape the work and how little agency artists have within that. So that's when we started kind of being really obsessed with data sovereignty and all these kind of issues that are still really important and prescient in the machine learning conversation. Those were the early seeds back in 2015. So, Mm. you know, there's always like a couple years that lead up to an album. <laughs> right. So so already, I'm guessing 2010, 11, 12, you're seeing what's happening on social media. You're watching labels fold. You're watching artists' royalties dry up. And you're thinking, all right, if we're not building new pathways, new channels, then what is this content worth anyway? Like we won't be able to facilitate it. It will be a very, very local pursuit because it won't be able to be broadcast and we won't be able to live off it. Definitely. And we're also starting to see a kind of flattening of aesthetics. You know, Matt was talking about our early noise days. We start seeing scenes like that morphing themselves into a kind of pop logic because that's the logic of the internet or of Instagram. So we start to see this kind of like homogenization of output in a way as well. 
I mean, Holly's classic line is the laptop is the most intimate instrument because you check your bank account while you're making a piece of art on there and that all kind of feeds into <laughs> Well, you have to rewind back to that time. I mean, I, I remember being in school and I tried to get an instrument locker and they were like, what's your instrument? And I was like, it's a laptop. And they were like, that doesn't count. And like, we've come so far. Like now it's really normal to see people with a laptop on stage. But at the time it was like, oh, why do you have a laptop on stage? Like you're just checking your email or whatever. Yeah. But, but the point is, the interesting part is that it's not so clear anymore. Like the first person, for example, to make playlisting a thing is like an old friend of mine who has no understanding of art in the way we might have. But he had a pretty profound impact on art, right? Because he was like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like a tape, you know, like teenagers trade tapes and like playlists get way more engagement. And it's like, yeah, that changed music forever. You know, we should have artists thinking at that level because clearly it has a big impact on art and music. So I think over time that perspective will not be controversial. And then it brings up other questions of like, well, what does it mean to go to an art school when you're not learning how to manipulate these things? You know, we've been quite fortunate in a way, also just like dogged in trying to teach ourselves how to intervene in these processes because it's really complicated. And oftentimes it doesn't feel like making art, <laughs> you know, like, but, right. but it is. I um, mean, I have this question that I now ask when I give a lecture, which is we just spend 10 minutes in the beginning giving definitions of art and trying to find some kind of common understanding. We were speaking with Cory Archangel. His practice, of course, utilizes digital systems, always has since mm-hmm. the 90s. And he just emphasizes, well, art has always been the network of relations around the piece of content, right? The piece of content on its own, it's a kind of personal expression. There may be great intentions for what it is, but it only becomes big A art when it exists within a network of relations, right? That's how it has meaning. That's how it has value. That's how it travels through time. It's archived according to those properties. And so what's so exciting to me about your practice and spawning, you know, which we'll of course talk about in a second, is that it's thinking intensely about these network of relations and how, say, Older frameworks like copyright correspond to a time when you could only lock your cello in a music locker, not your laptop, right? Like a time when things were just designated differently, right? And I think that if you're not thinking about this network of relations, then you're not really thinking about art. It might not be a popular opinion. I understand that. But if you're not caring for the network of relations and you're not influencing them or aware of how they're influencing your content, then you're not truly making art. You're making one component of it. And we're about to learn that, right? Because we're soon going to be at the point where you can automate infinite media in a particular style or likeness, right? And we actually wrote an essay on this, uh, Infinite Images and the Latent Camera. (laughs) It's a very very long title, but basically making the same point. It's kind of like, when you can do that, what is the scarce thing? The scarce thing is all the context and the intent around it, right? So it's like, Who cares if you can make a million images a day in the style of Artist X? You care what Artist X has to say. Right. And that's the scarcity. Like the scarcity is this actually coming from someone and, and it's not just this kind of superficial mimicry. And it's the same with the art world. It is controversial, right? Because the spirit of the platform age, a lot of it was this anti-elitist, breaking down barriers, no gatekeepers. Yeah. Everyone can be an artist. <laughs> Everyone can post online. Everyone can publish. And I was like, look, that's great. And the truth of the matter is, yeah, capital AR is a network cartel. Of, <laughs> exactly. For of better particular, or worse. For better or worse, of people who have all made a shared commitment to a particular kind of pursuit or competing pursuit. Mm -hmm, And that's what distinguishes it, which isn't to say that anyone creating anything anywhere can't produce something beautiful and incredible. But that when you talk about capital A art, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about a network. Exactly. That consensually determines a conversation. Yeah, that's a bit more important than the ability to just produce images. It just so happens that like a bunch of people in that network can also produce kind of cool images sometimes and use them to communicate sometimes. And this is a great example of how AI, I think, is going to show us ever more what we really value in art or what we really value in human production as opposed to being a threat to it, right? Although with capital A art, I also think about it in terms of the canon and art history. It's like you have to judge the art based on a much longer timeline. Like there's lots of people making art for the now, but could you say something about it in a hundred years in the context of the previous thousand years? Mm -hmm. I think it's really a timescale difference also, Also. although it is a a network. But I think the connection to the long durée of art or the canon is also an important aspect of it. But that's just definition art stuff conversation. 
But before we get into some of the more philosophical questions, could we get like a overview for people who are unfamiliar of spawning? Because so with this background, with this 10, 15 years thinking about systems of art making and this network of relations around content, sometime in the mid-teens, y'all started this project called Spawning and then produced Holly Plus, which is, I guess, a product of Spawning, or maybe you can verify what the relation is between those two entities. So can you give us some background about what you were trying to solve with it or explore with it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a lot to unpack. I mean, we started experimenting with machine learning in 2016. We were going into a new album cycle. So we put together an ensemble and we created an AI baby named Spawn (laughs) using training data that was either generated by us, so my voice, or by people that could consent. And then during... COVID lockdown is when we started working on Holly Plus. So we've been working on voice modeling for years and we finally got to a point where we could have like a really beautiful naturalistic version. And we presented that at TED in Uh 2022 and that was really fun. And an artist named Fur performed as me through my voice live. Look just like you, same height, same (laughs) age. Not quite, but um, sounded just like me and did a duet with his own beautiful voice and my my whatever voice. Um, Yeah. And so Holly Plus was a kind of thought experiment in a way where like, okay, this is the IP that we own. We feel comfortable experimenting with it. What would it mean if we made that voice available for other people to use? What kind of economic models could be built around that? What kind of like sharing systems? So we did actually implement some of the experiments that we wanted to do. And that was what was so great about some of the crypto tools. You know, when you say crypto, people often think like, oh, scam, this and the other. And it's so hard to be like, well, there's actually all these building blocks also that would cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars if you were kind of starting from scratch or trying to hire a team to build these things out. So we started experimenting with shared economic models around that, did a sale, like an NFT sale of different artists who created works with my voice, and then we profit shared with that. And then, yeah, we're all aware of like how far the discourse can go. And Matt and I have been really deep in the ML discourse for many years. And we got to a point where we're like, okay, do we want to see certain things be built or do we want to continue like kind of old man shaking fist in the sky? (laughs) And so we came to the conclusion that we need to actually have a more kind of concrete organization in order to do that. And so I'll let Matt talk about spawning more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the first choice you have to make when you're training a machine learning model, literally step one, is what data do I use? Mm-hmm. So the first time we ever did it, we're like, oh, that's going to be a big deal. Because <laughs> we ne- like we could either use our data or we could use Michael Jackson's data. <laughs> and like, oh, if we use Michael Jackson's data and then we put out that record or we make this piece of art, you kind of see where that's going to go, right. right? So like, I'm of the position that these ML tools are going to represent a new internet, a new economy around that internet, as profound as the one we've seen. So consent is a pretty big part of that, right? That first choice of saying, do you use data you're allowed to use or that people want you to use that can maybe be mutually beneficial to you and the person it's coming from, or do you just take the data is a pretty fundamental question. And so, and yeah. it's not an entirely new question, right? It's no, like, no, no, that's what the internet was built on. Totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here we go again. So you've got, you've got an opportunity. And, and so, yeah, so the, the high level framing this morning is it's like we're building a consent layer for AI. The idea is that just like Holly Plus, just like the stuff we did on Proto with Spawn initially, where, you know, we were doing like hundreds of people in a room group singing call and response training neural networks in 2018 or whatever. And the whole idea was like, hey, you should understand you're contributing to this. This could either be an incredibly beautiful collective accomplishment that everyone feels good about and feels positive about contributing to, or it could be... Extractive. <laughs> yeah, extractive. It yeah. could be an insane concentration of power. Yeah. It was also uh, important to show that in order to create a training set, you need human yeah. physical like, <laughs> yes. activity. It's a performance in and of itself. And that, that seems like a really obvious point, but people often just, I don't know, remove that human performance from the creation of the training set and see it as this kind of like alien other. And so we're really trying to hammer home this is coming from somewhere, from a human input. Well, exactly. It's like... All media now, anything that can be recorded is training data. And it has been for some time on the back end somewhere, right? There are profiles of you that exist somewhere where all the media you've produced has produced this kind of profile that you don't know exists. And you even have a tool actually that you built where you could check what is part of the training set. Would you just mention a word about that? Exactly, exactly. So so, so the first thing I should qualify is like spawning is a term we came up with 
and spawning basically means creating media from a training corpus of data, which is useful in distinguishing it from, let's say, sampling or collage or any of the analogies that we would use that I would argue is are completely insufficient in this context because it's just a different deal. We've been working with you know, text-to-image uh, systems for a long time. When that conversation started to crest, we're like, okay, well, here's an opportunity to actually educate people on how this works. So we put together with the rest of the spawning team haveibeentrained.com, which is like a pun on have I been pwned, <laughs> where you can go and see whether you, let's say your face or your artwork, are part of the most popular training set that has gone into training these large image models. And then just things kind of snowball from there, because we're like, okay, there's been a lot of demand, there's a lot of press interest in it. What if then, because we want to build this consent thing, what if when you find your work on there, we make a really easy way to be like, hey, this is my work. Mm-hmm. And give you a choice to say, okay, do I want my work involved in this model or do I not? And so we built some tools to do that. That campaign was super successful. To date, we've opted out 80 million images. Actually, by the end of this month, we'll be at a billion. And so then the next step was being like, okay, well, what if we just told the companies training these models, we have all these people who said they don't want their work involved. Will you just omit their work? Mm. And then... Stability, who are behind Stable Diffusion, which is one of the most popular ones, was like, yeah, sure. You know, talking about copyright and all these strange legal things, and don't get me wrong, there are strong arguments for copyright in some cases. It just kind of like how sampling is not really sufficient. It doesn't really cover the scale of this problem. And so we're like, okay, well, why don't we just try and build a more kind of pragmatic AI native IP standard here? Yeah, and so things have just kind of snowballed from there where it's like you start from one simple idea with the basic guiding star of like consent is a good idea in these contexts. And then you just keep building. And now the organization has an insanely robust API. The team in general has been doing remarkable work. Just to give some background, the models Stable Diffusion or ChatGPT, they're trained on these massive, massive data sets scraped from the internet. I mean, there's a part of each of us Mm -hmm. in these models, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a tiny fraction of ChatGPT that is your language, Mm -hmm. right? The first question, just to offer some more background, is obviously these data sets, they were initiated far before, I believe, anyone imagined chat GPT or stable diffusion existing. What was the motivation to begin scraping these extremely large data sets? Or was it all a machine learning conspiracy all along? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, we've stumbled into a few culture wars in our time. The cultural war around data IP in this thing is really complicated. I think there's kind of a fatalism where some people are like, capitalism, man, companies will just take and take and take and they don't care. And I'm like, that might bear out to be true. Let's hope not. But in actual cases, the really fuzzy line in the ML community is between research and product. If you want to test if a really large image model is going to work, you need to scrape a bunch of data to see if it works. If you want to test if a really large language model, as GPTs are, is going to work, you need to scrape a ton of data to see if they're going to work. In many jurisdictions, for example, at research level, it's perfectly legal to scrape a ton of data for research purposes. But what was the research in the beginning? Like, What was the motivation without knowing that these models were going to exist? To test if these kind of transformer neural network architectures were going to produce really... So it was a machine learning conspiracy from the beginning. Oh yeah, 100%. (laughs) So 10 years ago, they were already thinking about this and planning this 15 years ago. Well, it's tricky. I mean, basically like a bit of a prehistory, right? Neural network systems have existed for a really long time, right? Right. It's been an idea that what if we built a machine-like computational architecture that mimics the brain, it can store memory, it can infer... Medieval fantasy. Exactly, it can infer things from data, so on and so forth. There have been breakthroughs in the past 15, 20 years in terms of just making those processes way more efficient. That's also coupled with breakthroughs in making them way more powerful. So using a lot of compute basically to get better results. There's a huge debate here and there will be naysayers who are like, it's just the same shit. You're just throwing more compute at it. But all has conspired to mean that in the past 10 something, 15 years, we've been able to like throw way more capacity behind these ideas and just see what comes from them. Maybe we can get something that approaches a general intelligence, not meaning Mm. something that is equivalent to a human, but something that can perform equivalently to a human in terms of writing an essay Mm -hmm. or producing a Wikipedia page or something like that, right? Or a film. Well, yeah, exactly. So there's this really chicken and egg problem there. It's like you needed the data to be able to start. 
I think it's worth mentioning that a lot of these really large training sets come out of academic mm-hmm. communities, and so they also have different legal frameworks. Right. So if you're a nonprofit academic research institute, then you can use people's data for free online in a way that a commercial for-profit company can't. However, the for-profit companies are also using the models and the research from the university. So it becomes this kind of, yeah, incestuous. (laughs) The term data washing is used by some people, right? Where it's like... Hence the open AI bait and switch. You know, it's just... But as I said, I, I definitely like take an optimistic view of things in a sense that whatever path comes, I would argue fundamentally, we just need consenting data. Yeah. We're just, the cart came before the horse, whatever. It's an unfortunate byproduct of research turning into the future of the economy overnight. I know for a fact, having spoken to some of these research scientists, they knew things were going to be good, but they didn't know they were going to be that good. (laughs) You know what I mean? But also this is a problem with the way that the internet was designed from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, everything that we put on Instagram belongs to Instagram or whatever. So it's like we already had given up our rights to all of the media that we're putting online. And had that been approached in a different way from the beginning, we had our own kind of self-hosting and all of these kind of things. And then that would have kind of set us up to approach this huge shift in where the internet's going in the right way from the beginning. This is actually the second part of my question. One thing that stuck out to me that was really, as a result of noticing this, I started being suspicious to many more phenomenon, but uh, (laughs) Creative Commons copyleft, these progressive lefty approaches to copywriting or not copywriting to allow shared attribution or people to sample or use your work I mean, a lot of the images marked Creative Commons ended up being in these data sets that are just used by these uh, extremely large and powerful corporations that are going to, without putting a negative or positive spin on it, disrupt society and work significantly for the benefit of corporations in the end to one degree. Something that within one scope seemed progressive, within a higher scope actually served something that the people advocating for it would be actually really strongly against. And so maybe this is why you're working on this opt-out system is because copyright seems not adequate for this Uh, era. And I think you're right. I mean, I think bringing up Creative Commons, right? I I wrote a piece for Art Review, but the aspect of it was the revenge of free media, Mm -hmm. right? Where you're like, Creative Commons, to their credit, were attempting to build an IP standard native to the way in which people were using data at the time, right? It was very well-intentioned, but then AI arrives. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, it would be easy to attribute malice. It's really just there's a phase shift in everything. And the situation we're at right now is being like, no, we need, let's say, common sense IP to deal with this new reality. And to your point, we need new vernacular. That's why Mm -hmm. we came up with spawning. This is not sampling because the false binary in, let's say, a sampling discourse or a file sharing discourse, people love to bring up Napster or whatever, right? The false binary doesn't really help because you're like, free information, this kind of progressive ideal from the turn of the century of being like, who has an original idea anyway, man? (laughs) This kind of thing. It's like, cool, you're just feeding the most powerful companies, period. But Well, it's like with any culture war, I mean, both sides are kind of flawed. Like also this really punitive DRM side is also serving Disney and and the, the people with the biggest legal teams above everyone else. Exactly. So you can't just transpose these 20th century industrial questions over to this very 21st century kind of IP conundrum, it just doesn't work. And it's funny also how some things subvert, right? So it's like you see now with with fire we've walked into, with stable diffusion and data attribution, it's like the progressive side now there, in some cases is arguing for more punitive DRM than anyone argued during file sharing, mm. yeah. where they're like, we're going to destroy our image so that a bot can never read it. You know, and you're like, well, that's pretty, I mean, my personal position is as an individual artist, you should be able to make whatever choice you want. So go to town, but I'm not sure we want an internet full of destroyed images. I mean, that sounds like, um, you know, we're back at CE10, right? Or something, and it, it's like anaconism is returned. Totally, but you just see this pendulum of. swing where it's like the most progressive position before was like freedom of information. Now the progressive position, if you were to believe some corners online, is like copyright doesn't go far enough. <laughs> and you're like, well, no, in actuality, there's a more harmonious solution to this, which is just when you're dealing with data in a machine learning environment, you may actually have more options for consent than you ever had before. It's not just, don't 
use my picture or do use my picture. What we're thinking about this morning is it's like, no, feel free to use these ones, but don't use these. Mm -hmm. Or feel free to be me, but not in a porn scene. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so this, or only in this kind of porn scene. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly the point. If you get out of that false binary or the false dilemma of the 20th century industrial conundrum, you're like, no, actually you can do way cooler shit here and still respect people. And so that's ultimately the goal here is like IP should be something that's far more specific to the individual. And it's all very possible. And I love the way you frame spawning. I mean, spawning's MO is creating rails for consent, centering the artist. So the artist is the person who is managing them, which is a huge shift and actually one that's a hugely positive development from the 20th century, where artists were much lower on the food chain of where their music was able to be reproduced and how they got their royalties. I mean, a question I kind of want to ask is you've been thinking for the past 10 years longer about these questions of consent and about questions of machine learning. And in the past few weeks, especially, we've seen so many Twitter bait type conversations about the dangers of AI. And there are a lot of things to be concerned about in terms of like Neuralink or like runaway autonomous systems. But Maybe it, AI with access to the market. AI with access to the market. <laughs> sure, yeah. But I wonder for you, if you were to write guidelines, I mean, as you are writing for the culture sector, what are some of the key items that you're looking to in terms of aggregation of power or you're actually nervous about or actually really hopeful about when it comes to setting guidelines for AI in the culture sector right now? Oh, God, that's a really big question. It's interesting to frame this around specifically artists because I think artists are simply the kind of canary in the coal mine because they're really precious about their <laughs> the data that they put out there. But I think it applies to everyone. Like your new social profile in these systems will be kind of like your Instagram profile that you'll want to have some control over. So what it boils down to is that people have agency in how they are represented in this new latent space. Mm -hmm. At the moment, the only control one has is how many images of you are tagged online. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that the average user is going to be able to control with the current tools. But I think where people will want to go is that you're able to shape what your profile is. And maybe it's not what you look like in real life. Maybe it's some sort of avatar of yourself, but that you have some kind of control and agency in how you appear in these systems right. and how your work appears. Right. I mean, we all know how frustrating it is to have the Google profile of you, which you can't really, really alter. Even if you write responses back, you end up with photographs that aren't you or like embarrassing images and yeah. having some kind of control over that is definitely a relief. We're actually going to be publishing an essay soon that's called Embeddings as New Social Profiles. Mm. And the idea there is your, your embedding is basically a clustered group of data that represents a concept of you mm. in a machine learning model. And to your point, you already have a kind of profile that's ambiently sourced from the web. The classic case I, I remember seeing is that people who are exiled from the Scientology community. Right? <laughs> it's like when you type their name, the first thing that comes up, because the Church of Scientology has a habit of buying name domains and being like, this guy's actually a serial killer or something. You know, This is where it starts getting really strange and actually really cool and interesting is that when you're talking about these kind of aggregate, you know, we've used internally the term aggregor, right? It's <laughs> kind of like the, these kind of like aggregate spirits of you that exist somewhere in a model. The idea ultimately is that, yes, absolutely, you should be able to have some control over what that is. And what I enjoy about the Holly Plus project, for example, one of the things we haven't done is given Holly Plus like a fixed visual identity because it's like, well, if you were to exist in this disembodied representative form, why should you be the same as your corporeal being, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot there. And I think that's where understanding these things in the frame of, let's say, 20th century or early 21st century industrial practice might differ from where 21st century industry is going to go. Because the fundamental building blocks of this are just peculiar and plastic in ways that things weren't previously. I wanted to ask about this, actually, because just over the past week, there's been this flood of people making new Kanye or Drake or Eminem or Playboy Cardi songs or having Playboy Cardi do a Cocteau Twins <laughs> Uh, and really what we're seeing is celebrity musicians becoming intellectual property characters in the way like Spider-Man or mm -hmm. Batman would yeah, be yeah. intellectual property. It can be a different actor playing Batman, but Dark Horse still owns Batman mm -hmm. or Marvel still owns Spider-Man. Thinking about this in terms of musicians, 
Will record labels, will a 360 deal start including the person's voice and likeness? I mean, what do you do? They already do. I mean, of course, your voice. If you're signed to a... a But a a model of your voice, for instance, or a digital twin of a artist, would that start being included in a 360 deal? What do you even call that? What would you own to basically own the digital twin rights of of somebody? Personality rights. Ah. That's the kind of the legal framework that we have right right now. Yeah, so the only kind of protection, you can't actually copyright a voice, but you can copyright a personality. So the kind of precedent that we have, Nancy Sinatra uh, had this big song, These Boots Are Made For Walking, you Mm -hmm. all know that? There was a tire, Goodyear Tire wanted to use that for their advertisement, and she said no, and so they hired a Nancy Sinatra lookalike mm-hmm. to sing the song and change the words. And she took them to court, and she lost, actually. They were able to run the ad, but then fast forward 10, 20 years later, Bette Midler had a similar thing, also with a car company. I don't know what it is. It was a Ford, a Ford commercial. And they hired one of her backing singers who did like a Bette Midler pastiche of her, and she won that case because she said it was infringing on her, not on her voice rights, but on her her personality rights because it was so similar to her mm. personality. Mm. And Tom Waits had a similar case with Frito-Lay where they did a grovelly like Frito-Lay <laughs> kind of thing. And, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of crazy because, you know, the Tom Waits voice, where is that coming from? I mean, it's coming from black culture in the American South, you know? How does he on that? Yeah, so it's a really kind of slippery, sticky question, but I think that personality rights absolutely are going to be part of future contracts. But this is like also the warning when you're talking about a voice, you're talking about something innate right. to somebody. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine horrific scenarios where an 18-year-old MC on TikTok or whatever gets approached by a company and you know, is like, hey, here's 40 grand. <laughs> and you're like, as an 18-year-old, you're like, oh my God, that's life to, right? You sign a contract and then you like literally can't literally. use your voice yeah. anymore. One of the reasons why we've been obsessed with the voice for so long is because it's complicated, right? Because like, yes, each person has their own voice that's tied to their physical attributes, but also voices are inherently collective. Like you learn how to use your voice from the people around you. That's how you learn language that's how you learn like your dialect that's how you learn your inflections and even like a musical performance of a voice like a pop vocal or like an r&b vocal those are collectively created over decades with people contributing to a kind of sound mm-hmm. so it's not like there's this really clear delineation of where an individual voice ends and where the community that incubated that voice ends but that's, that's a, fascinating i mean that's a creepy part about AI too is how it reflects the process of our own creativity and how collective it is back at us which is a different conversation about what AI reveals about us. It Uh, destroys our genius idea. (laughs) But when it comes to this personality or characters, jurisdictionally, it'll be different depending on the country. I mean, in the United States, when you have things with jury trials, I mean, I guess that's why these different examples of these cases panned out in different ways. Or you think of the blurred lines court case, which Pharrell and Robin Thicke lost, but it was an utterly absurd decision. Pharrell and Robin Thicke did a song called Blurred Lines, and the estate of Marvin Gaye sued them because just vibes wise yeah, yeah, it yeah. sounded similar well, to you, a Marvin Gaye usually Gay you have song. to have a, a melodic similarity right. so that's been like precedent is that there's like enough notes in the melody that are similar <laughs> to what you're doing that it's kind of infringing but with this it was the bass line and the rhythm section were similar enough in vibe right. which is like a really far stretch but it's also I mean copyright is barely a 20th century conception it's kind of like older than that right, right. Like, we just kind of run out of analogies. Right. Artist Uh, control is the only way to even solve this problem. Exactly. So the point is we do have to digest that any superficial style, likeness, your facial coordinates, your sound of your voice will be able to be mimicked. And to be honest, the internet as we understand it or as anybody understands it could not exist if we tried to shut that down. These are open source decentralized technologies that anyone will be able to run on their laptop or phone in Mm. no time. A few things that need to be built. One, we need some kind of verification system, which was part of the idea behind Holly Plus, where you can tell, okay, here's a song with Holly's voice. Did this come from her? That's going to be built. That's Mm. actually one of the easier things. The second part is asking that maybe the more interesting question, which I think goes to like exactly what you were saying at the beginning, Carly, with what art is, is saying, well, what does it mean? 
when the world is infinite media with these characters, you know, the Drake cinematic mm-hmm. universe. Imagine a scenario in 10 years, this stuff runs like water. You will not be able to avoid derivative works. They will be everywhere. I could write a piece of software right now to produce infinite Drake songs over the next week. Who cares? At that point, what I imagine we will cluster around is one, the intent of the artist, Mm -hmm. two, the taste of the artist, right? We're going to care what song Drake likes that was made in Drake style, what Drake (laughs) fake Drake likes. So it's going to be all of those kind of social bonds that get to determine intersubjectively what the art is, where the action is. And that's actually what we're building for. Because the point is, if you want to try and shut everything down, I think it's impossible Particularly also, this is a global theatre. In China and in India, they have a very, very different relationship to copyright and intellectual property. When you're talking about data rights, this is now an international arms race. The second one country says, no, 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 you're not allowed to do this, Montenegro is going to emerge and say, hey, come here, train on whatever you want. Right? Like, so it's far more interesting to instead say, look, we're probably all going to have to lean into this. What's the best possible outcome? The best possible outcome, as Julian mentioned, is give the artists themselves self-determination over their digital twin. Mm -hmm. And I would argue, to go even further, I wouldn't be surprised in the next 10 years we will see like a digital human bill of rights. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of conversations like, can we give AI rights? It's like, we can leave that one for now. That's a, a bit silly. You know, I, I feel it, it's interesting conceptually, but it's a bit silly for now. No, can we give our digital twins rights? Right. Right. And in some cases, for example, GDPR touches on this a little bit, right? There's been this global consensus that you can't train a model or include biometrics or medical records. But it's like, let's take it a step further and be like, no, 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 our literal selves, this aggregate concept of us that we've contributed to that can now be spawned and animated in all these different contexts is a real thing. And it's actually me. And I think that's what we were trying to get at with Holly Plus is like, no, this is me. It may mutate and be strange and have different permission systems, but it's me. And actually, if I think really progressive policy would take that really seriously. I mean, it's all very strange. But that gets us closer to understanding how to make this work out for everybody. We're in like a weird limbo yeah. stage where people are just getting used to these concepts. They're just, and it's like, no, this is real for the rest of time. I mean, right? what, I, like, yeah. what I love about your framing, and Holly, you were just quoted in the New York Times this week. There was a piece of journalism by Joe Coscarelli, I think that's how you say his name, reflecting on this Drake and Weekend phenomenon where you say, as a society, we have to ask, do we care what Drake really feels? Or is it enough to just hear a superficially intelligent rendering? And then you go on to talk about how, well, some people will, and some people will really value that fan intimacy as they always have. And other people just want to listen to a song on Spotify in the style of Drake, because they generally like the vibe of Drake and that's enough for them. And then you go further on to talk about identity play and how as an artist, it maybe is very interesting to be able to like put on a Drake hat for a few bars, be Drake for a few bars. And one thing that's so cool about spawning and your relationship to these expanded copyright guidelines is that all of these can mutually exist. All of these will mutually exist. And it's not to moralize any of them or to say we can't have people. I think you said a friend of yours uses the term cultural fracking. (laughs) That's Jay Springett. Jay Springett. Yeah, great term. And then you make a comparison between cultural fracking, which would be like, I want to make a bunch of tracks using the voice of Diana Ross because people love Diana Ross and it's nothing to do really with Diana Ross except for the sound of her voice versus I, as Holly Herndon, want to throw in a few bars as Diana Ross because it conceptually makes sense for the song I'm making. And all of these are fine. We just need to have new guidelines for what it means to value the original material that it comes from and attribution and storage and circulation and consent. But it's not about like, no, we must stop. But I mean, it seems like it's going to get super weird as soon as we start having these kinds of consent guidelines. I mean, I think because we're sitting here in Berlin, there's so much fetish stuff in the club scene. (laughs) And in part, it's because there's mutually shared protocols about boundaries and limits and people really edgelord in certain ways, but they still feel safe ultimately or not overly vulnerable or attacked or extracted. And so maybe there's some similar analogy to where we're going with it. It's going to get weird and it's going to get like really kinky in a lot of ways (laughs) of like body 
bodies becoming other bodies and spirits becoming other spirits. Using digital twins is kind of like piss play in the dungeon <laughs> of Bergheim. I think I think there's something to that though. I mean, I think that like when you start, you know, it's not our community per se, but oftentimes when we're talking about consent being such a yeah. big deal, particularly consent and identity play. I mean, yeah. there is precedent in the LARPing and fetish communities. Yeah. And you do see there, let's say, like native permission systems, right? Like the idea of safe words, for example, yeah. something that most people know, but I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other stuff where you're like, okay, we're in a shared illusion right now. In these circumstances, we have this decorum, we have this etiquette, and we don't currently have etiquette for what's coming with AI, right. but we ought to, right? And so I think there is actually probably more precedent in there than, yeah. uh, than and I mean, I'm sure there are people like deep in the what, the Scandi LARP community being like rolling their eyes right now, being like, God, yeah. we've heard this all before. But it's true. It's like, yeah, what does it mean to be somebody else with their permission? Yeah. What is respect in that? Yeah. But you're also all describing subculture, essentially, and like these different kind of protocols or different rules will apply to different communities in different ways. And True. we'll have this endless stream of mainstream, memefied media content. You know, I feel like in the last couple decades, we've had this poptimist moment where it was like, okay, pop is best, or that that's like the highest form of art. And maybe we're going back to pop is like a little bit more of this plug and play kind of <laughs> memefied area. And then you have these kind of micro niche communities. I mean, that's I would like to see that personally. Maybe that's just my yeah, own and, and let's also desire. be real, right? Like we had a long chat with our mutual friend Trevor behind Lil Michaela, right? Where we talked about the pop industry and specifically Michaela, which I think is relevant to this, right? Is also understanding that what most people consider to be a pop icon or an avatar is very different from the person. Mm -hmm. Is a collective construction in many cases, right? Like, look, well, you always use the NASCAR. My analogy is like, exactly like Beyonce is a Formula One driver, <laughs> right? It's like it yeah, takes crews. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's this whole engineering superstructure that is mm -hmm. producing what most people understand to be Beyonce, but you need the Formula One driver to be able to steer that. Like, yeah. she's a remarkable <laughs> vocalist. And the like, entire you, 36th floor of a building in Midtown is Beyonce. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is as old as the music industry, right? So even when we talk about public figures in this way, inherently they are these kind of odd aggregore constructions. It just so happens that there's a real person behind all of it. Or even saying, like, what is the difference fundamentally between prompting a text-to-image system to produce a piece of artwork for you or a capital A gallery artist sending an email to a fabricator in China? Totally. The difference is the conversation it's part of, the intention behind it. As I said, I think there will, of course, be, I hope not too reactionary, a kind of plea for authenticity, where people are going to be like, no, I want to see you play the banjo. Like, are you touching that banjo? Right. Like, that will probably. The live shows probably will have new currency in this age, right? Like, 100%. I actually want to see the person. And I wonder also then if auto tuning will fall away because there'll be value in hearing the artist singing on mediated. I think you'll have an ML version of auto tune that's trained on your voice and so you'll be singing oh through your best self all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that is <Yeah>. futuristic. <laughs> Though with music, there's something I've noticed and maybe I'm hallucinating it, but I have have this feeling that there's been a return of the song, like the song in its core essence, the sticky melody or perhaps with the lyrics as well. I mean, I think of Nia Archives, who's this young woman who makes jungle, but you listen to the song with the top line she sings, the hooks, and they're all great, sticky songs. I also think about the recent explosion of Mexican regional corridos. Suddenly, a guy singing Mexican folk music is in the Billboard Global Top 100. And what's really interesting, these guys, they look like SoundCloud rappers, but it's just a guitar and maybe a horn section singing these ballads. And it does feel like there's still maybe something ineffable about this particular combination of a particular melody and its timbre. And my question is, do you think AI eventually will be able to actually crack what we consider the magic of a great song? Or do you actually believe there's still something ineffable or just too related to the nuances of the collective unconscious of humans? And AI just ends up being a tool to wrap it in a stylistic, in a genre set, say. I mean, I think if, the, if we're looking at like a formula, yes, an AI could create like a quote unquote perfect pop song, but I don't think that's what creates the actual perfect pop song. Yeah. It's like what hits in the cultural moment. So reading the cultural landscape and understanding what sounds and what references, you know, 
like a Lana Del Rey singing melancholy about playing video games. I don't know if an AI would come. Maybe an AI would. Right. I tend to veer towards this idea of centaur AI. Our friend Anil Bawakavia, that's the kind of image that he conjures when he talks about AI moving forward. Like the most powerful versions are when it's kind of in concert with the human mind as well. Because having that like human contextualization, I still think is important, but I don't know that it's necessarily always going to be a legible difference. In a way, it's like what's ineffable, what's magic about it. It's just you. It's you, the human, existing and and being alive. I mean, in a, in a weird way, it's like simultaneously as a lot of extremely online people become even more extremely online, there's some very powerful, wealthy tech guys who almost think of the body as a vestigial organ. And simultaneously, it feels like the human body, the person becomes more important than ever as a proof of context or a proof of existence. Well, I think that's true, but I also think there's another layer here, which again comes back to that early comment about art being the net of relations around an object. So an AI coming up with the perfect pop song or the perfect Lana Del Rey melancholy singing about video games is humans hearing that seeing the video and being like, that's now, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And it's the identification will always be with the human. Humans will still always be the arbiters. And there'll be this sleight of hand where you're like, oh, AI created the most amazing thing. No, humans identified the thing that AI created exactly. as the most amazing that's thing. A, yeah. The human selection process. Exactly. exactly. In, in that infinite images, I say, in a GAN, for example, you have a generator-discriminator relationship. That's kind of how these things train and whittle away. And the line we had was that humans are the ultimate discriminator, yeah. to your point, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's almost inevitable that we will have machine learning systems that are capable of producing incredible songs that are indistinguishable. When you look at, for example, the way in which many people have been encouraged to game feeds to like process hack things, these bots will be better at doing that. They will be better at sentiment analysis to produce that song that they think is perfect mm. for a particular circumstance. But then the question comes, does it matter? Exactly. And the, does it? Exactly. And the thing for me, like pop music is a promise that you are not listening alone. A hundred percent. Fundamentally. hundred percent. It does not matter. You can produce. And a lot of people mistake this and a lot of people, particularly in tech, mistake this. You've had this argument with so many machine learning scientists. This yeah, exact yeah. argument. Well, no, the, like, but you could make the perfect song for you, tailored to you. Nobody cares. No. Mm -hmm. no. Nobody You're cares. Like, no. I want to share agree. the song. And it's like, yeah. that, that works in the domain of <laughs> nobody cares. Right. Art is f fundamentally like subjective transfer of information or perspectives about things. Yes. And particularly between humans about being a human in whatever yes. context you're in. So we're about to be humans in a sea of infinite media. We have never yes. experienced this before. We've tempted it. What do we know about that? We've experimented with it a little bit with Web2. There's more media than any human could possibly consume in a lifetime posted to YouTube a day. So what do we do? <laughs> we filter it. How do we filter it? We look to the algorithm filters a little bit, but then we end up looking to humans. Yep. And it defaults, defaults, defaults. So it's like, yes, there will be a scenario where probably it's kind of like, well, I don't know. It also turns a lot of people into Nazis. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And also, <laughs> and it turns a lot of people into replaceable bots. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Right. So if you spent all your time trying to game an algorithm to produce a song to please some audience, like no disrespect to chain smokers or whatever, but like, remember, <laughs> but I remember they had this great right. full disrespect. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but they had this amazing billboard cover feature. I remember yeah. when I was working on Saga, actually reading this cover feature where they were transparent about it. They're like, yeah, we're like, we went to business school or whatever. Like we make music that you want to hear. Yeah. And we have this analytics team and we do all this. And it's like, yeah, like if you're doing that, you're setting yourself up to be replaced. Right. Because the sum total of your product here is just reading sentiment, trying to satisfy it to game these feeds. Yeah. And it's like, all that these tools do is shift the baseline. Okay, now anyone can produce infinite media in any style with any voice. Cool, we can all do that now. Yeah. So the people who we cluster around are going to be people who have relatable perspectives, people who have a novel perspective. People who are super hot. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. Like, yeah, hot as Lindy. It's just yeah, always yeah. going to be like hot people, right? But that's what's interesting. That's how we determine culture. Otherwise, it's all just content. And maybe yeah. we, we will need bots. There's a sea of infinite media. Every pop song has been made. Mm -hmm. So I will write a bot that reflects what I'm looking for. Totally. So I can surface things, but then people will care because it's my bot. Yeah. It's not just any bot. Was it like Brian Eno or who was it who had talked about like the power of the curator like back? Yeah. Like 
Totally. 20 years ago. Well, the seniors like, and the artists. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, and yeah, like you know, how the artists had become the curator, which we saw with relational aesthetics, which is mm-hmm. that movement was essentially that. It was prescient of this. Well, exactly. And, and then I would argue that like the protocol art approach is kind of in a similar yeah. vein, right? Yeah, Where definitely. you're just like, it's about guiding interactions as a creative act or something like this. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's an indelible part of this. But what's exciting to me, at least, is when everyone's baseline upgrades to that, yeah. like ha- distinguishing yourself is always elusive. Mm-hmm. It's always Mm-hmm. Always difficult to distinguish yourself. Like, why do you go see one DJ over another when they all play Jeff Mills tracks and then yeah. like throw in the drum and bass track every now and then to like spice it? Why do you see one over the other? Because you relate to them, because yeah. they're hot, because they come from a particular scene, because yeah. you know them, because you want to be them. Right. Right? Yeah. Because you signaling that you're part of that crew says something about you and it's aspirational. Like, these are all dynamics that you can't automate. Totally. You know? We, we've all been training ourselves since the rise of algorithmic social media on data sets, which reward us in certain ways, which shape our language in certain ways. I mean, I'm very impressed from a technical point of view about ChatGPT and MidJourney. Technically, it's an incredible feat. But I have to say, conceptually, that part doesn't feel like a shift to me. How would you characterize the big shift to come? What is the great weirdening that's going to come out of this? Oh, it's a good... I first off agree with the point. I mean, in some ways, there's kind of parallels to the whole debate around NFTs, right? Where it was like, NFTs are introducing these kind of gambling speculation dynamics to visual art. And you're like, no, 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 they're just surfacing. Right. And also called bluffs on a lot of the, the stories we tell ourselves about how, let's say, the art world works. This will do that with the internet. Nobody can be in denial now about how the internet works, about these mechanisms. Where the weirding comes is that Bucky Fuller has this, we, we view the future through the rear view window, right? We can only kind of understand new developments in the context of older ones. What is really difficult with this is that this suite of tools is a whole new space. It's very alien to how some things worked, but particularly to the stories we tell ourselves about how things work, right? Mm. Like we don't have a very robust concept of infinity when it comes to media. Mm. We don't have a really robust concept of what it means to have a digital twin. And so I think the challenge in the moment is a lot of people, the conversation like, well, how does this suite of tools change 20th century industry practices that we're familiar with when I'm kind of more interested in if you take these suite of tools as a prior, like what does being an artist mean in that Mm -hmm. era? Mm -hmm. To the point of new vernacular, and and I remember uh, Julian brought this up a fair amount on the Discord, you need new terms. Yeah. Spawning identity play. We're throwing those out in the world because we're like, we've worked on those. Those kind of work. I like the aggregor. (laughs) But I'm like, there should be probably a thousand of them because this is very, very different and new. And in 20 years time, those words and what whatever concepts, whatever embeddings, if you like to say, those represent, I think will be far more relatable to the 23-year-old than talking about, you know, vinyl records or something, right? It's an obligation almost to really figure out how the shit works and try and develop language and some kind of conceptual consistency around what it is, because that's what we have. Because let's be real, like, and I'm not trying to present this as an us versus them thing, but the machine learning engineers who are guiding the the economy probably going forward. They understand these concepts very well. So I think that's the great opportunity in some ways is like I've heard it characterized in other corners like this is the 21st century actually arriving. It took took until the 2020s for the 21st century to probably arrive. But just as an example of that, something as fundamental as an artistic aesthetic that's like recognizable, when you have the tools to be able to reproduce someone else's aesthetic in any media that you want, infinite pieces, you know, is that aesthetic valuable anymore? Or is that what we value in an art context? When you can remix different aesthetics and create new aesthetics or hybrid aesthetics so quickly, do we care that much about an individual's aesthetic? Or is it something else, a different role that the artist takes on? And that's like a huge difference from 20th century. Bring breakers, but make it witch house. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but like for everything. <laughs> for everything. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. Like what will that do? That's a huge shift. Maybe we don't care about aesthetics as much anymore. But we kind of don't. I would push back about we don't care about aesthetics. I think what we understand aesthetics to be has changed. Sure, yeah. I I think that, again, as we've also sort of leveled up or the baseline has changed, I think also for aesthetics, what we consider to be aesthetics, what we're sensitive to, what we pay attention to, even subconsciously has changed. Because I think there is something specific there, but it's not going to look like... I I think I agree with you. That's actually closer. But maybe it's not visual aesthetics. Maybe it's like the aesthetics of the system. 
system design or something. Mm, could you know, be. it's like yep. a different layer. Mm-hmm. What's the practice? Yeah. That's what I keep yeah. coming to, which is kind of a very lossy term. Right. But you have a practice. Yeah. Hopefully the idea is that over 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, you look at a thread, a through path through the practice, and you say, well, all those things made sense together. They clustered into the embedding that is known as our practice, right? Like that 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 is but that's very different from like a recognizable brushstroke. I mean, that's like yes. a huge departure. There's this amazing line that I always think of in Bernadette Corporation's Rena Spalling novel, which I think was published in like 2004 or something, where they say selves produce bodies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as opposed to you dress yourself a certain way. Yeah, yeah. It's like the self, the core of totally. the human, that's what creates the body. And of course, there's medical reasons and all kinds of things. But I feel like that's such a useful analogy 100%. for this. Yeah. And the aesthetics will be on the level of the core mm-hmm. that will produce bodies that will have likenesses or... Totally. You're kind of like a meme or a... <laughs> well, the, well, the great... The greatest... Sounds like a great feature. No, but, no, but you're kind of like... No, but the greatest compliment you can give to an artist is like, we're friends with Trevor Paglow, for example. It's just like, Trevor did something and I was like, oh yeah, that's so Trevor. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, what does that mean? Right, right. You, know, you have this person who has a set group of interests and they've explored these aesthetic territories and they've explored these certain concepts or whatever and then this and then a new thing comes out and you're like, yeah, that's that, that's totally what Trevor would do in those circumstances. You know, and it's not like a style. Right. It's a cluster. A logic. It's yeah. an approach. Yeah. It, it's a practice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there is this discourse around it from the aughts, which I think probably now it changes in the context of what we've been speaking about today, where it became so much about the subjectivity of the artist that that was really what was on display. And people would come to your opening, like think of a Kippenberger or an Immendor for Damien Hurst or something, right? You're coming because of the person, because of the personality in the world they generate around them. Of course, one then starts to have this very like neoliberal relationship to it. Like the artist is the subjectivity, the subjectivity is the that has value, not the thing they create. So I wonder how that conversation is going to change given all that we've been speaking about today. Because I think it will. I think what you're saying is both right and also is part of a longer conversation. And I'll be interesting to see how those principles might shift in the coming year or two. Totally. Let alone decade. Yeah. I mean, we're spending this year working on a bunch of exhibitions, which is kind of new for us. And the idea there is to be like, okay, like what, what's a way to display art in this this. Yeah. Yeah. Music was always like a really (laughs) too small of a container for our ideas. So it's exciting to try to see what it looks like as an exhibition. Right. If it looks like anything. If it looks like anything. I mean, it's entirely new territory for us, but it's super exciting because it felt like things were spilling over the records and you just couldn't shove them all in. When you say you're preparing exhibitions, do you mean, I know you've been working, creating these paintings or these visual murals. And of course, there is a music practice and there is this technological practice. So I don't know if you want to give away too many spoilers, but what materially would an exhibition be for you? We're figuring that out. I mean, the core of the idea is we're building a very different kind of machine learning model. With a model, you can kind of... That can manifest in any medium. That's the ah. kind of like weird thing about it is like it could be a scent, it could be like a dance, it could be like a sculpture or whatever because it's just a model, a logic. Yeah, exactly. So we're trying to figure out how to best communicate. But the real balance in some cases is like we follow the art world, a lot of our friends are in the art world. We've been lucky in a sense to find our way into it a little bit. But with that comes this weird expectation where you're like, oh no, now you're in the art world, so like put something on the wall or uh-huh. do whatever. And it's like to start with where the conversation began we take really seriously this idea of software art, of a protocol being art, of it manifesting certain opinionated effects, <laughs> you know? And so thinking about exhibiting, we're trying to be true to right. that. And, and in not how, play into like what it's supposed to look like. It, right. Exactly. Yeah. Which is a total tension. And of course there will be visually stimulating things in there, but, it's, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you kind of need, I mean, it can't be an empty, but like, you know, what the... Um, Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, Matt Dryhurst, Holly Herndon, thank you so much for this super fascinating conversation. Thank you. We listen to every podcast. So, (laughs) where can people, yes, (laughs) where can people find out more about spawning and about whatever else you may have in the pipeline? Oh, gosh. I'm kind of like in a baby zone lately. So I'm kind of in and out of uh, social media, but I'm on Twitter, probably more active there than on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. So Holly's at Holly Herndon. I'm at Matt with one T Dryhurst. Matt Dryhurst, so not Matt with one T Dryhurst. Um, yeah. And you can follow it's spawning.ai for spawning. And then, yeah, it's interdependence.fm is the podcast. 
I'm on Twitter a lot. Holly jumps in and mic drops and then. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. And then plays with my baby. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much. And we're really excited about what you have coming next. You're always an inspiration to us. So thank you. (laughs) That's really wonderful. And yeah, anytime. Thank you so much. Ciao. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Models Podcast. And thank you, Matt and Holly, for joining us. To learn more about the artists' AI identity tools that Matt and Holly mentioned on the show, check out spawning.ai. You can also subscribe to their podcast, Interdependence, either via Patreon or channel.io. Meanwhile, we wish you all a happy and anarchic May Day if you celebrate it. May 1st, 2023 marks five years of the New Models podcast, which first launched May 1st, 2018. Podcasts come and podcasts go, but New Models is forever. We're survivors, and we're grateful to all those who have been with us for half a decade and to those who recently joined us for the next half. We'll be fighting side by side in the war against the machines, but till then, see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Low Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com Over 5,000 podcasters go missing every year without a trace. Their families are broken and their listeners are left with a void inside that can never be filled. If you know the whereabouts of a missing podcaster or have seen artificial intelligence driving a white van near places that podcasters congregate, send us an email at desk at newmodels.io or contact your local office of the FBI. See you next episode.